So Pastor David, as you all can tell, Pastor David, Maggie, and Elliot are not with us today. They are with family um, and enjoying their time, uh, and they'll be hitting the road and headed back this week. So I want to encourage you to keep them in your prayers. And so I am preaching, and I am continuing in Matthew. So we've been in Matthew for a very long time. We're journeying through this book, and we are trying to see what we can learn about the kingdom, what we learn about our lives as believers, what we learn about God from this book of the Bible. And so we've been focusing intensely on it. So like I said, we're going to continue. And I am, I'm kind of excited about the passages that we're going to look at today. I like them a lot. I love when you can see, you know, like humanity in the Bible. It makes me, I just, I love that. So that's why I love the Old Testament. Because in the Old Testament, you really get a full picture of these heroes and sheroes. You see their flaws, you see their strengths, their weaknesses, the good, bad, and the ugly. Um, You don't often get to see that as much in the New Testament. I mean, we see it with the disciples. Lord knows they give us lots of good, bad, and ugly. Um, (laughs) But we don't necessarily see it in some of the heroes and the sheroes of the New Testament. And, And this, of course, is especially true of Jesus Christ. We know that Jesus is, you know, he was Lord. He was both fully human and he was fully divine at the same time. That's what the the New Testament tells us. All of the books, we see this time and time again. And I think we believe this kind of. Like we believe that he was fully God. And we kind of believe he was fully human, right? We know he got hungry and he walked around and he touched people. He got sad sometimes. But I don't think that we often take seriously like the fully of human, right? The Bible tells us in Hebrews that that he experienced everything that we've experienced yet was without sin. Everything that we've experienced, the full range of human emotion. So I like the passages today because I think we get to see some of the the not-so-soft side of Jesus. (laughs) Um, and, And I think that what is powerful, at least to me, and I hope you will see this as well, is that last week when Pastor David made the claim that if you want to know what the kingdom of God is, look at the life of Jesus, that's how you'll see it. I think that that is equally true when you look at those not-so-soft parts of Jesus. We learn amazing things about the kingdom, what life in the kingdom is like. And so that's the premise that I want to continue today. If you want to know what life in the kingdom is about, look at Jesus. So I, I want to make three claims. First, I'm going to say that um, God never tires of us. So three things about the kingdom. One is that God never tires of us. The second thing is that God always responds to our faith. And the third thing is that in the kingdom, literally everyone is welcome. And you will see this powerfully, hopefully, in the passages that we'll look at. So let's go ahead and get into the text. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Matthew chapter 15. And I, okay, I'm sorry. (laughs) Now, I want to say this is bold for me because I usually like to have as much be as hidden as I possibly can, but um, that's even more than (laughs) what I need today. So I'm going to go ahead and switch to the music stand. Here we go. Okay, so Matthew chapter 15, and I'm going to read for you verses 1 through 28. Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, 
Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Jesus replied, and why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is devoted to God, they are not to honor their father or mother with it. Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen and understand. What goes into someone's mouth does not defile them, but what comes out of their mouth is what defiles them. Then the disciples came to him and asked, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? He replied, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be pulled up by the root. Leave them. They are blind guides. If the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Peter said, explain the parable to us. Are you still so dull? Jesus asked them. Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person. But eating with unwashed hands does not defile them. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from the vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him, Lord, help me, she said. He replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. This is the word of God. Amen. Okay, so the first point of the day is that God does not tire of us. So this story begins with Jesus once again being confronted by the Pharisees and being accused of being completely off track. So in the past, we've seen the Pharisees come at him and accuse him of not following the law. Um, But now they're accusing him of not keeping the tradition of the elders. And this was an oral tradition that had been passed down from generation to generation um, in a set of rules and guidelines. And so they're coming at him and saying, hey, y'all are nasty, you're not washing your hands. And Jesus then comes at them and rebukes them and says, you know, that's not what this is about. You, with your oral traditions, are basically nullifying the word of God. And if anything, the word of God trumps your tradition. So after rebuking them, he decides to teach the crowd. 
and he calls him to him and he says, look, it's not about dirty hands. It's not anything that you can put in your body that will make you unclean. Clean and unclean is a matter of the heart, right? So he explains this to the crowd and then Peter comes and says, could you explain the parable to us? Now, in Mark's gospel, we have all of the disciples coming to him and asking him to explain the, the parable. But either way, here, Peter's the representative, and he says, can you explain this parable to us? Now, this is not an unfamiliar scene. We've seen this a lot, right? The last few sermons, we've seen Jesus speaking in parables and teaching, and the disciples coming to him afterwards and saying, we don't, we don't know what you were talking about. Could you explain that to us? And then Jesus, he explains, right? But something unique happens here. In one of the rare instances in the book of Mark, we see Jesus sort of rebuking them. He's a little bit annoyed, just a touch. He says, are you still so dull? And I feel Jesus. So if you think about this parable, (laughs) in light of all of the parables that Jesus has told, I mean, we've got the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, and he gave this wonderful story. The kingdom of God is like a sower, somebody running and throwing seed on different paths. I mean, long, detailed, complicated parables. This is fairly easy to understand, I would think, and that they come. Could you explain this to us, Lord? And so he says, are you still so dull? So the beauty of this passage to me is that exact statement. The fact that we see Jesus being a little bit frustrated. Um, And that might sound strange to you, like why would that be the thing that I like the most (laughs) in the passage? Well, I have a confession to make. I am my worst critic. I am terrible. I'm very, 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 very hard on myself. I assure you, there is absolutely nothing, no flaw, no character issue that you could ever bring to me about me that I have not seen and agonized over. (laughs) I'm terrible. And one of the most life-giving revelations I've had as a Christian (laughs) is that God does not feel about me the way I often feel about myself. See, I used to really, really struggle because I left the story at Jesus being frustrated. So when I would sin, when I would be wrestling with something in my life, instead of turning to God, I would go, I would turn away from God. I wanted to be as far away from God as I possibly could because, oh my gosh, I'm so, I I failed again, I messed up again. And I imagined, you know, God sitting in heaven looking at me going, are you kidding me? Are you so dull? (laughs) How are you still struggling with this? How are you still wrestling with this? Do you really not get it? That's how I saw God interacting with me. That was the image that I had of God. Now, I knew that wasn't true, right? I knew that that's not what Scripture said. I knew that, you know, grace was not something that we could earn. I knew that God took the punishment on the cross and that we are accepted in his sight. I knew all of that in my mind. But in my heart, when I would struggle, when I was not doing the things that I thought I should be doing, my reaction was to say, I, you know, I, I can't pray now because look at me. I don't want to talk to God now because look at me. I need to go away. I need to turn away. And I think that this is something that a lot of Christians struggle with. We believe that God looks at us and says, are you still so dull? Like he just gets annoyed and even disgusted maybe with our sin and our pettiness. And I would go so far as to um, feel like I deserved punishment. So I would look at things in my life and, um, and kind of want bad things to happen. I felt like I deserved bad things to happen. And when they would, then I could come to God 
right? So now, okay, think, okay, I got it. Yep, that's why that happened. Now I can come to the Lord. I've, I was wrong. I've been punished, and now I can come back. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> that's, not, that's, not how God, that's not how God deals with us, thank God. But this was the image that I had in my mind because I would leave the story at Jesus saying, are you still so dull? But the awesome thing is that's not where the story ends, right? Yes, he, he's a little tired of them, a little frustrated. And yes, he rebukes them, gently rebukes, kind of gently, firmly rebukes. But what does he do? He explains the parable. Just as he has done in the passages before, he takes the time, he sits down, and he teaches them. And we see Jesus doing this time and time again. Jesus walked with the disciples literally until the very end of his ministry on earth. He was patient with them, sometimes firm, like, you know, when he called Peter Satan. That's a little firm. Other times, very gently, but all the time, patiently walking with them, teaching them, correcting them. God doesn't get tired of us. God is never sitting in heaven looking at you like, you know what, I'm about, I'm done. This is it. I'm through. It just doesn't happen. That's not how he interacts with us. He's always lovingly correcting, guiding, leading, teaching. Sometimes it's firm. Sometimes it's gentle because he knows exactly what we need to hear, when we need to hear it, and how we need to hear it. So that's the beauty of that passage to me. Even in Jesus's, you know, not so softer side, what we see is that God does not get tired of us. So this brings me to my second point, and this is where we're going to spend a lot of time today. God always responds to our faith. Okay, so this next movement that we see in the story um, is Jesus interacting with the Canaanite woman. Now, Matthew's description of her as a Canaanite, I think, is very important If you are familiar with scripture, you should remember that word, Canaanite. This is a word that appears time and time again in the Old Testament. The Canaanites were the people who were inhabiting Palestine. These were the folk who were inhabiting the land, uh, the promised land, the land that God was going to give to the children of Israel. And so you see it all of the time. They were also pagan, so they did not serve this one God, the God of Israel. As such, they are... I guess the counter to the children of Israel, the opposite of the children of Israel. And in fact, Abraham admonishes both both Jacob and Esau not to marry a Canaanite woman. And this wasn't, you know, any kind of, you know, ethnic kind of thing like they're bad, you're good. It was centered on this idea of who they worship. The Canaanites did not worship the one true God. So this is why Abraham tells them that the Canaanites are the opposite of the children of Israel. So we see it all over the Old Testament, but you don't see it at all, say, for this one instance in the New Testament. Matthew's designation of this woman as a Canaanite emphasizes her complete otherness. She is not like the disciples. She is an outsider. She is not one of us. This woman was the epitome of the outsider. And so she comes to Jesus crying out, Lord, Lord, help me. And there's several things that I want to point out. The first, this woman correctly identifies Jesus as the son of David. Now, this is important because it tells us two things. One, it tells us that she's familiar with Jewish teachings. 
She has some knowledge of the, the teachings about the Messiah. And the second thing that it tells us is that to some extent, she's accepted some of these teachings, right? Because she seems to believe that Jesus is, in fact, the son of David. This is further evidenced by the fact that she calls him Lord. And in fact, three times in this passage, this woman refers to Jesus as Lord. The second thing that um, I want to note is the language that's used to describe her posture towards Jesus in verse 25. So the NIV translates it as knelt at his feet. And it says that, you know, after she cried out to him and he, he says no the first time, she kneels down before him. So this word is, could also be translated as worship. And we see it in other places in Matthew, knelt before Jesus' feet. People come to him, they kneel before his feet, and they make a request. And in other places, I think it's a little bit more clear that the kneeling is an act of reverence, is an act of worship. But here, I want to point it out because it's easy to overlook it and think, oh, she's just begging, right? She's crying out. She wants Jesus to heal her daughter, and so she just kind of is now on her knees begging. But I think if you, if you see it that way, you miss something. This woman, yes, absolutely, she is pleading with Jesus to heal her daughter. She is desperate. But her posture towards Jesus indicates that she recognizes who he is and is giving him the worship that he desires. It's not that he deserves. It's not just her begging. So what does Jesus do? Well, his first response is none at all. Now, you have to get this picture in your head. Um, The text tells us that she cried out, and really what it's saying is she was crying out. Like, you have to imagine, this woman, she's not just like, Jesus, hey, Jesus, um, can you help me? She's desperate. She's frantic. She's screaming. She's probably running after them. She's probably waving her, her arm. She is trying to get this man's attention. She is doing everything she can to get this man's attention because she desperately needs him to move on her behalf. And he absolutely heard her. <laughs> and what does he do? He ignores her. He says not a single word to her. Now, I think that's a little rude. (laughs) I mean, you might not, but I think that's just a, a touch rude. He ignores this woman crying out. Not a single word. So most commentaries don't really offer much of an explanation as to why he doesn't respond initially. I mean, some people will point to the fact that, you know, what we see in the text is that she is a Canaanite and that his ministry at this point in time is to the children of Israel, and so that's why he is ignoring her. But that wasn't a great explanation for me. See, I think that what we're seeing here is Jesus being human. Say human. Amen. So let's remember what's happened up to this point. John the Baptist has been killed, and not just killed, he was beheaded, brutally, brutally murdered. John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, the one who baptized him, the one who prepared the way for his ministry, has been murdered. And we know that this deeply bothered Jesus because in the text that we saw last week, we see Jesus retreating. He goes away to try to be in a solitary place by himself to mourn, to deal with this. But no sooner than he arrives in the place that he is heading, he's greeted by what? A large crowd. 
And what does Jesus do? He doesn't go away. He doesn't retreat. He teaches them. He spends time teaching. And after he's done teaching, he performs a miracle and he feeds 5,000 men and a countless number of women and children with very little fish (laughs) and very little bread. He performs this miracle. Literally from the moment he finds out about John the Baptist's beheading to this encounter with the Canaanite woman, what Jesus has been doing is ministering, performing miracles, dealing with his disciples, dealing with the Pharisees, dealing with his disciples again. And I think that when this woman came waving her arms and screaming out, I'm sorry, I believe Jesus was just a little done. I think he was tired. I think he was through. I think he didn't feel like it at that moment. I think he was being human. So this woman approaches, asking, Lord, Lord, could you perform yet another miracle? He's tired. He's grieving. I think he's done. But then the disciples chime in. Oh, disciples. Send this woman away, Jesus. Basically, she is getting on our nerves. It's this response to the woman that initially moves Jesus to address her. And that is powerful. See, the disciples come to Jesus and say, send her away. He doesn't address them. He doesn't say a single word to them. He turns and he addresses the woman. Why? Well, I think that in this moment, Jesus is teaching. I mean, think about it. The language that the disciples use should sound a little bit familiar to you. This is the second time that we see the disciples asking Jesus to send someone away. Last week, it was the crowd. And now, to the credit of the disciples, in that instance, as we saw last week, it wasn't, you know, they were concerned about the crowd. It was late. Jesus had been teaching them, and he's saying, hey, Jesus, could you send them away so they can go get something to eat? And here again, they are coming at Jesus and saying, send her away. Now, this time, of course, it is not out of compassion. But Jesus responds to her. Just like last week he told his disciples, you feed them. This week, he's teaching again. He has something important that he wants not only to do for this woman, but I think to say and to teach his disciples. See, remember, this is not a culture where women approach men in this way. And think about who this woman was in particular. She's not just a woman. She is a Canaanite woman. She is more than likely a poor woman. She is, by all accounts, beneath them. I think that when Jesus responds to her, he is in that moment restoring a monicum of dignity to her. See, if he had continued to ignore her, if he had continued to walk away and just do his thing and be tired, I think he would have been affirming what the disciples had in mind. Jesus may have been tired. He may have been a little bit done. But I think something else was going on in the disciples. This woman, this Canaanite, is annoying us. Send her away. But Jesus responds to her. He restores to her a monicum of dignity. And then he has this conversation. Now, the conversation, I just said he restores to her a monicum of dignity. Now, the words that he says in this conversation may not seem very dignified since he likens her to a dog. But (laughs) even
even in that interaction, if you think about what is happening, Jesus engages in a dialogue with this woman. He engages in a a back and forth, a tit for tat. They are having an argument, and actually she wins in the end. That is powerful. Even if Jesus' words were not so nice, the fact that he engages her, he takes her seriously, he hears her and allows her to challenge him. That (laughs) was powerful. This is not how men and women interacted at this time, especially not men like Jesus who are rabbis, who are teachers, and women like this woman. But he speaks to her. So let's look at this response. Now, this is a tricky passage, and um, it's one that people often gloss over. I've been a Christian for a very long time and been in church for a long time, and I have heard this preached twice, and I think by the same person who is back there right now. (laughs) This is not a passage that people readily jump to and try to dig in. People, you know, because it's not so, it's a little harsh, right? And and there are two main ways that I've seen this passage framed in, in stuff that I've read about it. On the one hand, you, you have people who will frame it as Jesus testing this woman, right? He had every intention of helping her, um, but he's testing her faith, and she passes the test, praise God. On the other hand, you have people who sort of try to um, explain away the, the harshness of the language, right? So uh, that, that maybe God calling or Jesus referring to her as a dog wasn't as, you know, biting as it seems when we read it in our, in our text. So I think there's evidence for both of these things to be kind of true. It's clear from the passage that this woman, like I said, was familiar with Jewish teachings. Jesus would have clearly recognized this, right, by her address. She calls him son of David. So she's clearly aware of, you know, who he is, who, you know, his, what his belief system says about him. And it is, in fact, the case that Jesus' mission at this, this point as a Messiah is to the Jews, to the children of Israel. And we see this in the 10th chapter of Matthew in verses 5 and 6, right? When Jesus sends out the disciples, he tells them not to go to among, don't go among the Gentiles, but rather to the lost sheep of Israel. And this is the same language that we see Jesus using. I've been sent to the lost sheep of Israel. However, it was always a part of Jewish understanding that God's blessing of the Jewish people would sort of, you know, overflow or trickle down to the Gentiles. And we can see this clearly in Romans 15, 8, and 9, where Paul writes, For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promise made to the patriarchs might be confirmed, and moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy." And this conversation that happens between Jesus and this woman seems to indicate that she would have been familiar, possibly, with this tradition, right? So maybe this was a test. Jesus was testing her faith. As far as language goes, um, it was common at that time to refer to Gentiles as dogs. They were imaged as, you know, sort of wild, unclean dogs that roamed the streets. And so... What some people point out, though, is that in this passage, the language dog um, is, can be translated more like a house dog. So it's not, it's not the mangy dogs, the unclean dogs that are roaming the street. It was like a, it was a household pet, Fido, even. 
<laughs> so Jesus is not necessarily using the term dog in the typical way, but it's, you know, likening her to a beloved, a beloved pet. So, uh, <laughs> yes, so, so both of these things are true. Let's say it's a test and the language is not as harsh as it seems, but um, Jesus likens this woman and her child to a dog. Now, I'm just going to say for the record, you can't call me a dog. <laughs> and you can't call my child a dog. And should you call either of us a dog, even if you are talking about, you know, fluffy, I'm going to be offended, right? So this, is, this language, no matter how you frame it, is harsh. <laughs> Again, I think what we are seeing here is Jesus' full humanity. Regardless of whether it was a test, regardless of whether the language was not as harsh as it can initially sound, he probably could have said it a different way, right? <laughs> but he's tired. He's grieving. So yeah, he's testing his faith, but may- maybe, maybe his filters are a little off today. I don't know. He's fully human. However you see it, even in the midst of this, in the midst of this language that's not so nice, in the midst of this um, sort of posture towards her initially that's kind of like, ah, I don't want to be bothered, what does Jesus do? He engages her. When he ignores her, she presses When he comes at her and says, hey, I haven't come to you, she worships. When he likens her to a household pet, she turns his logic on its head. And this moves Jesus. He responds to her faith, and the text tells us that her daughter is healed in that moment. And not only does he respond to it, he praises her great faith. Despite being tired, despite perhaps not really wanting to, bo- to be bothered at that moment, despite even the fact that at this time his ministry was in fact to the children of Israel, Jesus blesses her. He responds to her faith. See, in the kingdom, Jesus always responds to our faith. As a church, we want to be a whole lot of things, right? We want to be um, a community where people feel welcomed when they come and they experience the love of God. We want to be a light in our community and a witness to Christ's love in our community. We want to be a light to each other, right? We want to be authentic community to each other. All of these things are awesome things to desire. But I think that above all of that, we should want to be a church that is faithful, We should want to be a church that is in the Word of God, that knows the Word of God, and that stands faithfully on that Word, because God always responds to our faith. See, I don't know about you, but like I said, you can't call me a dog. I don't necessarily like to be ignored, but even in this moment, in in this hmm, not-so-soft side of Jesus, what we see, what is powerful is that God always responds to our faith. So this brings me to my last point, and that is that in the kingdom, everyone is welcome. The kingdom of God is literally for everyone. So the other thing that this story of the Canaanite woman, her, what her faith teaches us, is that the only requisite for membership in the kingdom is faith a faithful response to Jesus Christ. 
Like I said earlier, this woman is the epitome of an outsider. Not only was she Gentile, not only is she a she, (laughs) she's also poor. And how do we know this? So this woman approaches Jesus on behalf of her daughter. If there had been a male head of household, if she had been under the protection or the covering of a male, more than likely that person would have approached Jesus. So the fact that she is coming to Jesus in the way that she is tells us that she is likely alone, single. She is caring for her child. And that almost necessarily tells us that she is poor. This is not a woman of means. So she's poor, a Gentile, and a woman. She is the epitome of the outsider. She is the exact opposite of this group of men she is approaching. This woman was at the very bottom of the totem pole. However, not only does Jesus respond to her faith and heal her daughter, he praises her faith. Jesus' words about her faith ought to sound familiar to you because we have seen two sort of parallel stories, right, so far in the text. If you remember the centurion man, how many folk remember that? Pam came and preached about this. So in this story of the centurion, and this is a man who had charge over 100 soldiers, so he's a powerful man, also a Gentile. And he comes to Jesus because his servant is sick and dying. And he asks Jesus to heal his servant. And so Jesus, you know, they have this conversation, and Jesus asks him, once he's decided he's going to heal the servant, he says, should I go with you? You know, basically, should I come to your house and heal this man? And the centurion says to Jesus, no, you know, just say the word. Because I believe this centurion, who was also a man who had authority and who believed and recognized the authority that Jesus had, he believed that that the man would be healed just by Jesus saying a word. And Jesus in that story praises this man's faith and says that it's some of the greatest faith that he has seen, right? This Gentile man. Jesus is moved and he praises his faith. So what's powerful here is that this centurion man and the Canaanite woman are on two opposite ends of a spectrum. On the one hand, you have this powerful man who has authority, and while he is a Gentile in the great larger social scheme, he would have had a higher status than Jesus. On the other end, you have this Canaanite woman, this poor woman who comes, is an outsider, and by all accounts is beneath much lower, has a much lower social standing than Jesus. But her faith is also praised. Jesus is also moved. See, throughout the Gospels, we've seen all kinds of Jewish people coming to faith. And that has been sort of the testimony of the Gospel of Matthew, that the least likely people get chosen. The disciples were the least likely band of brothers to have been chosen to follow Jesus, and yet he chooses them. We see Jesus interacting with tax collectors, with folk who were, you know, on the outskirts, on the margins. But in these two stories, I think this is even more, this is broadened. It's not just for all kinds of Jewish people, right? It's for those who are far out, the people who truly are the least likely to be in, get to be in. The kingdom is no respect of person because these two people's faiths, these Gentiles, these extreme outsiders, their faith is praised higher and above some of the folk who are on the inside. 
This is the second parallel that we see. When is the last time we heard the word faith mentioned? Last week, right? If you remember Peter walking out on the water, Jesus is out there and Peter's in the boat, and Peter says, hey, Jesus, if that's you, let me come out and walk on the water. And Jesus tells him to come, and Peter steps out and starts walking and then starts to sink. And Peter, you know, and Jesus looks at Peter and is like, okay, you little faith, little faith. So here's Peter, this insider, this disciple that's close to Jesus. His faith is little, small, while this woman who is an extreme outsider, her faith is praised as being great. In the kingdom, there is no respect of person. All are welcomed and all can be used. All are equal. We stand equally before the Lord. So what does this mean for us? Um, And worship team, you can come up wherever the worship team is. Okay, I'm blind today. I can't even see people. (laughs) It's been said several times over um, the course of our study of Matthew that the kingdom of God is both right now and not yet, right? It's here and it's coming. Jesus ushered in the kingdom and he calls us to participate in his kingdom work, but we are still waiting for the fullness of the kingdom to, to, to be manifest. So we point people to the kingdom. I guess if, if, if you think about, you know, in the theme that we've been going in, Jesus teaching in parables, if we were to make this a parable, you could say, you know, the kingdom is like a community of believers who love one another across racial and social lines, right? We point people. We are kind of a walking parable, what the kingdom of God is like. We might say the kingdom of God is a church who welcomes those who are on the margins of society, those who no one thinks should have access or will get access. Or even the kingdom of God is like a church family that never ceases to love one another and extend grace, even when we make mistake after mistake time and time again. See, I think that the text today is a witness to us that we ought to point people to Jesus in this way. And we can, because this Jesus that was fully human and fully divine, this Jesus who got frustrated, this Jesus who was a little rude, this Jesus who got tired, that got grieved, this Jesus is our Savior, and this Jesus died on a cross, and this Jesus is inside of us, and so therefore we can point people to a Jesus that does not get tired of us. We can point people to a Jesus that does not that always responds to our faith. We can point people to a Jesus that says absolutely every single person is welcome. The only thing that you have to do to be in is respond in faith to me. And I always respond to your faith. That's what we get to do. We can point people to that Jesus. And these passages also encourage us. They encourage us because despite how funky we are, Despite our humanness, God never tires of us. God always responds to our faith. Despite how outside and apart and separate you might feel, God always says you are welcome and I am chasing after you. That's the good news of this text. That's the good news that we see when we look at the fullness of Jesus' humanity and the fullness of his divinity. We are blessed. We are blessed, and because we are blessed, we can be a blessing to people who are on the outsides. Pray with me.
God, I thank you that you are a God that always responds to our faith. And not only do you respond to our faith, but you give us faith and allow us to be faithful people. I thank you, Lord, that you are a God that does not get tired of us, that your love for us is unceasing and unyielding. I thank you that there is not a single person on this earth who is beyond your reach. I pray that you would make us people who point to that. I pray that we would be a community of believers that witness that to the world. I pray that when people see us, they would see you. That when people talk to us, they would experience you. That when people interact with you, they would feel your love. And that they would be drawn to you. God, we lift you up because you are awesome and you are great. And we are oh so thankful, oh so thankful that you chose to love us. That you called us and that you hold us in the palm of your hand. Lord, make us faithful. Make us faithful. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. New community, go from this place being a witness to this kind of kingdom, a kingdom where God never tires of us, where God always responds to our faith, and where God welcomes the people who we think are unwelcomed. We are blessed, and because of that, we get to be a blessing. So we will see you next Sunday. Go forth from here with joy and gladness. Amen.